Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. This week on Truth and Movies, Mutants Assemble is the last stand for Professor Xavier's gifted youngsters in X-Men Dark Phoenix. Are you a scared little girl who answers to a man in a chair? Or are you the most powerful creature on the planet? Julianne Moore stars in Sebastian Lelio's English-language remake of his Chilean gem, Gloria Bell. And in Film Club, Dennis Price takes an axe to the family tree in the deliciously dry Ealing comedy, Kind Hearts and Coronets. I could almost wish those people should all die tomorrow. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, welcome back, listeners. It's Michael Leader here in the host's chair, sitting across this week from Simran Hans of The Observer. Hello. And Campbell A. Campbell. Hello. How are we doing this morning? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. It's a sunny, beautiful day. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to talk about X-Men. You ready to talk about X-Men as well, Cam? I suppose, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we should just get on with it, really. Yeah. The Dark Phoenix will waits for no one. Kick. She has risen. She has risen, and we have risen early to talk about her. Let's start with X-Men Dark Phoenix. Rising out of the ashes of X-Men Apocalypse comes Dark Phoenix, a retelling of the landmark comic book saga starring the younger cast of mutant superstars from the First Class franchise. It's now 1992, and while on an orbital rescue mission, Sophie Turner's Jean Grey has a close encounter with a mysterious cloud of cosmic energy, unlocking untold power, but also disturbing long-buried trauma. These developments threaten to tear the X-Men apart and put the whole world in danger. Will the combined efforts of Charles Xavier, Magneto, Mystique and the gang be able to bring Jean back from the brink? Who are you? The better question is, who are you? Are you a scared little girl who answers to a man in a chair? Or are you the most powerful creature on the planet? I don't know who I am. Yes, you do. You're the girl who everyone abandons. Maybe they had good reason. Because what's inside you? You're afraid of it because you think it makes you bad, evil. All the words you've been taught to keep you in line. Words created a very long time ago by men with very little minds. They can't begin to comprehend what you are. Even your X-Men. So a clip from Dark Phoenix there. Sophie Turner talking with Jessica Chastain's mysterious figure who's tempting her towards perhaps 
pretty disastrous character choices there. So Cam, we are 20 years into the X-Men franchise now. We've had a very wayward journey to get here. Different timelines, different casts. This is the second time we've seen the Dark Phoenix story mangled by, by the film franchise. How do we approach a film like this? We, are you still on board after Apocalypse, etc.? Like you said, it's been the franchise has been around for 20 years, and that's the majority of my life, so it feels like all of the signifiers of an X-Men movie are just... You can just kind of recall them. When you say X-Men movie, you think battle in suburbia, cop cars get flipped over, and this movie seems to kind of just replicate everything these films have ever done, just kind of note for note. It's very one-track, and... It's strange to talk about because it's meant to be the end of a fra- of this franchise, but mm. it seems unintentionally, I suppose, because of the whole Disney Fox merger. But yes. it doesn't really function that way. It's such a strange film because it it feels like the end of a TV show that we haven't seen. <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> it's such a strange one to talk about because all of the off-screen drama is very present. Even in the interviews on the junket circuit, you had the cast and crew talking about how they had to reshoot the entire end of this film because a similar ending happened in a Marvel movie. We I know which that, one. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, we, we now know that Disney have bought out Fox and are putting the brakes on this franchise. But then we also do have New Mutants, another one limping out into cinemas next year. It's quite hard to put all that to the side, but let's try and do that. So, Simran, how can we tackle this film? Is it an enjoyable romp? Is it an epic adventure? So let me preface this by saying that I'm pretty non-committal about the X-Men movies. This film's set in 92, that's the year I was born, and uh, I grew up with them in the 90s, you know, watched all of those films, was into Hugh Jackman, yeah. Anna Paquin, like James Marsden. I'd forgotten James Marsden was in those films. So I have a certain nostalgia for it, but I'm not really a completist. I think I've seen most of them, mm-hmm. but I don't really know lots about the comics. I don't come to it with any of that context or knowledge. I just quite like these movies. Mm-hmm. I'd seen and really liked First Class. Mm-hmm. I love the tension between Charles and Eric and all of the uh, the kind of bubbling, simmering, weirdly kind of flirty energy between the two of them. And I may or may not be referring to the Tumblr fan fiction between the two mm-hmm. that somebody sent me in the... So when did it come out? 2011? Around then, yes. Yeah, yes. around that time. Okay. You know, I have dabbled. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, <laughs> How was it? You know what? Some of it is very well written. Some of it is very well written. But basically, yeah, I like First Class and I, I like those two actors playing off each other. And so that's kind of where my general interest in in this film is in kind of seeing these two interact with each other and so for what it is I I quite enjoyed this film I was quite surprised to skim the reviews this morning after the embargo lifted and see that a lot of my fellow colleagues had not enjoyed it especially (laughs) Robbie Collin who gave it one shining star Mm -hmm. but um, yeah I don't think it's that bad I do think there is something to be said for these films being kind of stretched out over so many different movies and actors having to fulfil contractual obligations Mm. and um, certain actors giving it more (laughs) energy than others. I think James McAvoy is still very good in this film. I think Michael Fassbender is over it. 
Oh, really? Well, this is the thing. Back in 2011, Fassbender, McAvoy and Jennifer Lawrence and all signed contracts for a long time. And then their relative stars have risen or fallen in the time since, or their tastes have changed, their interests, their ambitions. But imagine how you felt in 2011 if you were given the promise of lots of money (laughs) and you'd had quite a good time making this film and you'd gotten along with the people you thought, well, you know, I could do this again. That's how I'd feel probably. And, and then the, come to regret it. And then they also tell you that, look, you're going to have to spend eight hours in a makeup chair every time you're on set. And, how, and everyone's going to get mad at you if you don't do it. I suppose that is the reason to come back. The characters have always been the draw for X-Men and with Xavier and Magneto at the heart of it, whether it's Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart or Fassbender and McAvoy playing them. Do you think anyone's doing particularly good work here, Cam? Are they, are they given the opportunity to do that? I think it's... Consistently throughout this kind of new quadrilogy, I think James McAvoy has been doing, like consistently been doing the best work as like a Charles Xavier where before, if you're familiar with Patrick Stewart's performance of him, he's a very um, unimpeachably good figure and McAvoy does a lot of good work to kind of complicate that. They have him drinking a lot, mm-hmm. in the, uh, especially in this film and McAvoy at least gets to play him as a sort of egotist, a man who is militarising children for the sake of his personal glory. I think the strongest element of the film is seeing him be able to introduce that kind of different side yeah. to Xavier because it's a little more complicated than what we're used to. And along um, with it, you know, we've had the X-Mansion, the X-Jet, now we have the X-Phone, which is a hotline <laughs> to the president X-Phone. that he has. This is very much the X-Men as, as establishment figures, I suppose. I feel we've, we've had five diplomatic minutes here, so maybe I can vent spleen a little bit on this film. I thought it was terrible, unfortunately. I've been a fan of these films since the first one came out. I was at that very impressionable teenage age when it came out, and even some of the flawed earlier films, I still found something's like in here, but I think the X-Men franchise is, in terms of quality, varies wildly over the years, and this just shows how much of a corner they've backed themselves into the writers, producers, directors, where they don't have any clue what these characters are supposed to be doing. They don't really have any great stories to tell or themes to explore now. They've, time and again, hammered the same dichotomy that exists, the binary between Xavier and Magneto, whether you should integrate or whether you should revolt against the status quo. Then also there's the teen soap opera aspects of whether you should let your emotions, which are here in metaphor form as as mutant powers, whether you should let them overwhelm you or whether you should control them and bury them down. And that comes here in the story of Jean Grey. But we've seen it all before here. These are kind of very classic superhero movie Mm. tropes right being parentless and like Mm -hmm. who's your mother and father figure the idea of family and and kind of teamwork but I also think that what Cam was saying about the god complex that Charles Xavier Mm -hmm. is kind of um, being cross-examined for I just think that's really interesting Mm -hmm. and he is more nuanced than just good or just bad and you still by the end of the film you sort of sense that he's coming from a a positive place I think the film is on side but it's not unchecked it's Mm -hmm. not unexamined I think that's um, I think um, that is the most interesting aspect of the film for me and it seems like something different but there's nothing really in the rest of the films that we've seen up to this point that really supports that and to make a comparison with a film that I think most people can agree is is, is generally a a more robust film like Black Panther where there is a moral quandary a good and a bad guy that 
in that you don't really know who to side with. And there's a long stretch of the film where I think actually maybe, maybe Michael B. Jordan's character has a point that T'Challa shouldn't be king. But here, I think that it's more lip service. I don't think the film has the courage of its convictions to really show Xavier in a negative light. And that's where, as a fan of these movies, and I've watched so many of them, and this is the one which made me feel like I've watched too many of these films. I wanted that. I wanted the character to be dressed down, to be deconstructed and built back up into something new, and it couldn't deliver that. And instead, it has more mutant spectacle sequences with crazy characters with strange powers we've not seen before. There's someone here with dreadlock powers. (laughs) He swings around his dreads and strangles people. For all we know, that could be a great character in the comics that we've just not seen. That was me as a teenager. I mean, what I I will say is, as I mentioned before, I'm not super across lots of comic book films. Mm -hmm. It's really not my kind of interest or area. But obviously for my job, I have to see a lot Mm. of them. Um, And I feel I'm often seeing them without context. And I did think that the way this film looked, the blocking and the kind of editing Mm. and the choreography was very graphic. Mm. Each frame to me looked like it could be a still from a comic book. And I thought that was quite nice, especially in the fight sequence that takes place on a moving train Mm -hmm. and then a a kind of another image when a subway car kind of crashes out of the concrete. I thought these looked quite good. Yeah, I I think that they delivered quite well. It's just whether there's more to the film than that, I suppose, Uh, if if you want more than that or whether you just want some spectacle. Will will we discuss its similarities with Captain Marvel? So that is the big big (laughs) one, right? So... I can't remember. It was James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender in an interview recently said they had to reshoot the ending because it was too similar to a Marvel movie coming out in the first half of this year. And people thought, oh, does that mean because it's kind of similar to Infinity War or Endgame, the Avengers movie, will they all die or something like that? But no, it's specifically Captain Marvel. Please expand. Well, so um, Jean Grey in the beginning of the film her power undergoes a kind of transformation and visually it looks almost exactly like what happens to Brie Larson's Captain Marvel. The way the power manifests is this kind of liquid light show and it looks almost identical. There's also a moment where the character, who is female, is told that she's got to control her emotions and her emotions make her weak. And in fact, then she's told that her emotions actually make her strong. Well, that's what she decides. There's also the element of repressed trauma Mm -hmm. that is apparent in in both of these characters. And I thought that the Jean Grey arc worked better than Captain Marvel. I found the the sort of trauma stuff quite vague, not very well Mm -hmm. drawn in that one. Maybe it's because I'm perhaps more receptive to the sort of family stuff Mm -hmm. that was in this one. I'm not sure, but I did find myself thinking, hmm, I've seen this before quite recently. (laughs) I agree that it was executed better here than in Captain Marvel. I think it's partly because Jean Grey is a slightly better defined character than Brie Larson's was because she literally doesn't remember who she is. With this, it's more of an element of herself that has been locked away, which causes her to reevaluate what she knows about herself rather than literally going on a journey to discover who she is and we just kind of roll along with it like in Captain Marvel. There's also the superficial element of shape-shifting aliens as well but I guess that doesn't matter as and much. And a sort of really. cosmic uh, orbital aspect as well. Some of the showdowns happen just in, 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 in space as well. So I lots of similarities there. But I must say you know, it's, it's really interesting you say that and I, I do think that the arc is quite well expressed here but I don't have any handle on Sophie Turner as Jean Grey and likewise most of this young cast Cody Smith-McPhee as Nightcrawler Ty Sheridan as Cyclops all these characters you you half remember from being in Days of Future Past or, or <laughs> Apocalypse they're still not fully formed characters or performances here I suppose that um, 
Ty Sheridan's performance is fairly true to what we've seen of Cyclops in the past X-Men because, I mean, you literally forgot James Marsden was in these and I forgot Ty Sheridan was in this as well. And yeah, well, I had to look it up. I was like, oh, who played the original Cyclops? I was like, James Marsden, of course. How could he, I have forgotten that cute face? And he has that whole, like, kind of awkward love triangle with uh, Jean Grey and Wolverine. Never and forget. Like, it's a strange one. And that's one thing. I know that we run the risk of wanting Disney to buy everything and own our souls forever. But one thing that the Marvel movies do, I think, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies do, is they really care about their characters. They cast very well and they allow those characters room to breathe and to make an impression, even supporting roles in all of their films. And So you can have a film like Infinity War where you have 20-plus characters and you recognise and care for each of them. In this one, you have scenes with a dozen characters, some of whom don't even seem to have names, some of whom maybe get dispatched in ways that you think, oh, is, is that it for that character? I don't know. Are they coming back? And then they pop up at the end and it's like, oh, so is that the end of their story? We're never seeing them again. It's There's something here that the Fox don't know how to create an ensemble. I think as well, the discrepancy between the levels of celebrity and the levels mm-hmm. of star in this film, they don't necessarily complement each other. I think Fassbender, I mean, to a lesser extent in this one, I think he, yeah, he's not into it. Um, <laughs> but Fassbender, McAvoy and Jennifer Lawrence, they are such kind of big screen presences. They kind of eclipse the others. Mm-hmm. Sophie Turner I found quite bland mm-hmm. in this. And I haven't seen Game yeah. of Thrones, so I don't know if she does Me better either. work on the small screen. I thought Sophie Turner was solid, but I think, yeah, like you're, you're right that in that the much bigger names from the ones who have been there with this since first class made a much stronger impression. Even Nicholas Holt, who was kind of mm-hmm. not all that present, I enjoyed in his dressing down of Xavier at mm-hmm. certain points that seems like... But there's a varying degree of star power and also passion going into it, and it kind of fluctuates across the board. Jennifer Lawrence as well <laughs> seems like she's probably seems like she's relieved to be free of this franchise. That brings me to this final question maybe. Is this a fitting end to a 20-year franchise if they're going to put it to bed now and Disney maybe will keep it in the keep it in the cupboard for a little longer and then bring it back out and reboot it or whatever. Is this the fitting end for that? I suppose in the sense that it is a film that seems like most other X-Men movies. <laughs> okay. Did it pay off for you, Simran, going back to the fanfic period or the <laughs> Hugh Jackman stan period? Well, okay, without wanting to spoiler it, there is a scene that sees those two reunited and I will tell you it's in an exotic location with a very famous landmark in the background when we pan out, just in case we haven't realised where we are. <laughs> a famous phallic landmark as well, I must say. I'm sure the fanficers will be all over that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put some scores on this. Campbell, I'll come to you first. I was, uh, for anticipation, I was a two on this. So I felt a little bit burned out on X-Men movies for a while and... Enjoyment 3, I thought it was fine. There were moments where I did enjoy myself. Uh, you mentioned the set piece on the train earlier. I thought that was a really well choreographed bit of action. And some, uh, in a lot of instances, there were moments that felt connected to the real world in a good way. And then it would kind of offset it with CGI goop. Mm-hmm. And then kind of in retrospect to 2, it mm-hmm. just felt like the positive moments just kind of overshadowed by things that were just overly familiar or well-trodden ground, especially for someone that wrote the same film 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. Simran? Uh, I'd probably go go in anticipation like a two. I kind of forgot it was coming out. Um, <laughs> and then enjoyment, probably, you know, like a solid four. I came out and I was like, woo, X-Men. Um, but actually kind of discussing it and analysing it and thinking about it, I'd have to bump it back down to 
probably a three. I didn't think it was bad. I definitely didn't think it was as bad as you thought it was, Michael. But well, yeah, spoilers. It wasn't for my the best. Scores. For me, it's a, it's two, two, one. Oh, uh, it's a one. Fox themselves knocked down the anticipation. I think they're trying to bury this film. Uh, they they did not seem confident in the marketing. They didn't seem confident in the junketing, the press tour at all on, on this movie. And yes, as I said, this is nothing new. Characters that I really should be rooting for, I don't have a handle on. And some sporadic scenes of, of enjoyment, some performances, but there's a glass ceiling there for me that, of enjoyment. And it's time to put the X-Men franchise to bed. I'm quite happy to not see another one for many years. Although there is another one coming next year, New Mutants. Who knows if that's going to be any good. If that's a real movie, I guess. I, yeah, does it even exist? That one has another Game of Thrones actor in, right? That's, uh, oh, yeah, Maisie Williams. Williams. And Danny Taylor-Joy so, and, the, and the other actress from Split. There you go. So it's. I must say that they did reshoot some scenes in this film and how jacked James McAvoy was fluctuated. And I wonder whether it's because he was in form to play the Beast in Split and Glass uh, at certain points. Anyway, that's just another behind-the-scenes tidbit for this film. It sounds like we have a very varied response to Dark Phoenix around the table. Let us know what you think if you do see it. Up next, we have Gloria Bell, starring Julianne Moore. In this remake of the 2013 Chilean drama, Julianne Moore is a free-spirited middle-aged divorcee who spends her nights tearing up the dance floor throughout Los Angeles. One night, she meets fellow traveller Arnold, played by John Turturro, and an unexpected late-life romance blossoms. So Simran, way back when, I remember you reviewed Gloria. How does this stack up to the original? Way back when, in 2013, and when you mentioned this to me when you saw me the other day, I dug through my email inbox and uh, found my old review, which, you know, while cringy, I thought I would share some lines from it. (laughs) So what I said about Gloria... The film never strays into the realm of parody, affording its protagonist an unshakable sense of self-worth and dignity. Gloria's self-possessed confidence is never more apparent or alluring than in the film's love scenes, I cannot believe that I wrote this, by the way, which celebrate both her unapologetic sensuality and her body in all of its wrinkled, fleshy glory. Now, I'm I'm dying about the fact that I like called an older woman's body wrinkled and fleshy. That seems so inappropriate. So apologies if uh, any wrinkled or fleshy listeners are offended by that. I think Julianne Moore is an update of this. She's neither particularly wrinkled or fleshy. Mm-hmm. So I feel like maybe the kind of... I don't know, relatability of the character is not the same. She's sort of glamorised. But let me just take you back, even though we've already been taken back. We're going to go back and then forward to last September where I saw the film in Toronto. And I I quite like Gloria, um, the original film. So I was kind of like intrigued to see what was going on with this. I was interested by the fact that Sebastian Lelio was doing a remake of his own film, Michael Haneke style. Mm Oh my goodness me. I watched this film and I was outraged. I just like the hairs on my arms were standing up because I was so angry. It's literally a shot for shot remake, but with, right. just in English. Mm-hmm. And I was so furious because I just don't understand why. Why? Mm-hmm. There's only one reason, and it's money. Mm. Sebastian Lelio <laughs> is greedy, and <laughs> all he wants is to milk his own former success and debase the original Gloria in order to get some dollars. 
if he's listening to this, that's rude, but I mean it. Um, I just, I, I don't know. I just, it really infuriated me that like I felt there was nothing new mm-hmm. being added to the story. I watched it again uh, yesterday just to make sure I wasn't being unduly harsh, and and maybe my reaction was a little bit strong upon originally watching it. I think it's not a bad movie. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a, a quite effective rom-com. I find its rhythms are a bit televisual. You sort of see her dancing in the nightclub and you see her driving in her car and you see her hanging out with John Turturro and these rhythms kind of repeat and repeat and it all feels quite sort of sedate. But Julianne Moore is very good in it. You know, I love Julianne Moore. You know, when Julianne Moore is dancing in the club to 70s music or doing a hot cloth cleanse or hanging out with her cat, like, yeah, that's great. I want to see that. But also, I just don't understand why. Why? Why? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, this film has really annoyed me. Kimberly, were you watching this fresh or had you seen the original as well? Um, I'm watching this fresh, so I'm not quite So how did it play with you? Um... (laughs) I think just pretty middle of the road again mm-hmm. <laughs> as the second remake by <laughs> the, the initial creator that mm-hmm. we've discussed in this episode. Even like not having seen Gloria, it didn't feel all that fresh to me. And as I was watching it, a housemate kind of popped their head in and just kind of looks at it and just goes, see, the problem with this is that it's Julianne Moore and not someone like uh, more relatable, not like and as a affront to Julianne Moore, who's a superb actress, but like it's telling the story of someone like kind of I don't want. I don't want to reuse the terms wrinkled and fleshy, but I can't get it out of my mind now. I would but, like to clarify that it was wrinkled and fleshy glory. Yes, wrinkled and fleshy it's glory. Good, good, good wordplay. I think that wrinkled and fleshy glory. I'm sorry, I've said it so many times now. That feels like what's missing from here. It's. Yeah, well, well, to put it a different way, right? Of course, Julianne Moore, (laughs) even if she's in her 50s and even if she's single, is going to have a poppin' sex life because she's she's Julianne Moore. Which is not to say that Paulina Garcia is not also attractive, but there was something less glamorised about Mm -hmm. her portrayal. I will say some things that I enjoyed that they kept from the original movie. The gastric band belt, which has to be Velcro Mm -hmm. ripped off before John Turturro and uh, Julianne Moore have sex. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you hear the ripping so I thought that was that was very enjoyable (laughs) the other thing that I kind of wanted to flag about this film is that I don't know if either of you have seen Fantastic Fantastic Woman uh, which is Sebastian Lelio's film prior there's another scene of a woman in a car doing some karaoke this felt very derivative of that Mm -hmm. I thought aesthetically it looked quite similar to Fantastic Mm Woman with these kind of like very sort of pink blue pastel neon cinematography and I believe the cinematographer also worked on the neon demon so I think there's like a little bit of of that going on I also thought the score was very similar to Fantastic Women It's the the same composer that's actually one thing I would say that I liked about it is that Matthew Herbert who's been working with with Sebastian Lillio in his last three or four films they've created quite a nice vibe but it just seems similar Yeah to me it it felt derivative Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, you know I do have a a vendetta against this film already so yeah. I mean it just yeah it just kind of sounds like it's on autopilot then um, I'm not someone that familiar with Lelio I've kind of missed all of the major things of the last few years during his kind of breakout I guess with Fantastic Woman but it does feel like it coasts along yeah. from beginning to end I'm not really I didn't really find myself that enthralled by anything. There were really nice touches, I thought, like the gastric band. Is, for, that, is that the correct terminology? Or, or, or is it a, like a girdle or something? Yeah, it's or, like a, it, yeah. 
is keeping his gut in. He's had gastric band weight loss surgery and he has this sort of, yeah, quite... Uh, I don't know, maternity-looking Velcro girdle. I'm sure we'll find out in our late middle age. <laughs> because also you're supposed to believe that John Turturro had lost however many stone in the last year, and he looks yeah. great for his age. <laughs> he looks amazing, isn't yeah. it? I think it, it is very emblematic of the Hollywood remake where everyone's a little younger, a little hotter, and everything's a little bit more opulent than in the original, would you say? Yeah, and also just like, I don't know, just imagine having that little faith in uh, an English-language-speaking audience that they can't be bothered to read subtitles. Mm -hmm. It's not like it's an obscure or inaccessible film, the original Chilean one. It's actually, its rhythms feel quite American in a way. Not maybe American is the wrong word, but definitely, like, uh, accessible for Mm -hmm. sure. So I keep repeating my point, but I really don't understand why they need to make this again. This film is almost a dictionary definition of quite a faint praise term but good company it's, you can just watch it you know, good actors existing in scenes together you have a bit of Michael Sarah, a bit of Sean Astin in the first film I've seen him in and since he was a hobbit does he uh, actually say anything I can't remember him saying he anything. wanders over and puts his arm around Julianne Moore <laughs> right I think he places a bet at a table yeah. he or something I don't know but it whiles away the time Imagine if you made a film and someone was like, yeah, that wild away the time. <laughs> <laughs> but then you'd be you know, crying into your dollars, right? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> if, if, if your hypothesis is correct, Simran. I mean, I think it probably is. But <laughs> Let's put some scores on it. I have a feeling this is going to be worse than Dark Phoenix for you. Yes, I enjoyed it much less than I enjoyed Dark Phoenix. I would say anticipation for this maybe a three didn't really feel like there needed to be a remake but sure I'll watch it upon watching probably like a two and on reflection still a two one is is not fair because I don't think it's incompetent Mm -hmm. but I don't like it Campbell I am fairly straight down the middle on this one I think anticipation was a three I'm not familiar with Lelio's work I hadn't heard great things about this coming in but I guess I was just kind of ready I was like oh I could watch Julianne Moore Party for a while Um, (laughs) Enjoyment a 3 it kind of just sailed past I didn't find anything really outstanding about it it just seemed I don't know it, it just seemed very locked into a kind of mellow rhythm and nothing really grabbed me all that much I guess in retrospect, a two, uh, knowing what I know now, <laughs> considering that none of these ideas came from even an original place for him, it just kind of makes it, like, it just kind of sours the rest of it for me. I'd say three, three, two for me. I like Julianne Moore a lot. She's one of my favourite actresses, so I was was expecting something for her, and she delivers a, a fine performance, but it's not exactly a, a must-see essential film. In fact, it's very inessential because you could just go and watch the original and it sounds yeah. like we would recommend that one. And Yeah, if you liked this film even a little bit, I would definitely recommend going back and watching the original from 2013. I'd also recommend watching Claire Denis' Let the Sunshine In, which is oh. kind of thematically similar, about a slightly older woman who's single, somewhat chaotic, and, you know, enjoying a sex life. Mm-hmm. So those, that would be my recommendation. So perhaps think twice about seeing Gloria Bell and Dark Phoenix this weekend, but... We have a blast from the past. From 1949 in Film Club this week, we have Kind Hearts and Coronets, released for its 70th anniversary. Up next in Film Club. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So this week, the BFI are re-releasing the Yielding Studios comedy Kind Hearts and Coronets just in time for its 70th anniversary of its initial release. Dennis Price stars as a young man cut off from his aristocratic roots who decides to cleave his way closer to the family fortune that he believes is rightfully his. To get to the top of the family tree, though, he first has to get through eight members of the Dascoyne family, all played by Alec Guinness. It's very stupid since one day you might be Duke of Chelford. The Descoins were the obstacle between me and my birthright. I could almost wish those people should all die tomorrow. I suddenly conceived a brilliant idea. What could I take from them? Perhaps their lives? My late son. A great loss. I really wouldn't be surprised if you murdered them all. Could almost believe there was a curse on our unfortunate family. Indeed, sir, one could. It took a mere three minutes to substitute petrol for the paraffin. What is it? Oh, they're just burning some leaves at the bottom of the gut. Is that the official trailer? That's a very amped up trailer there for Kind Hearts and Coronets, which sounds like, I don't know, Sherlock or something. <laughs> A lot of incident here. This is a very sedate Ealing comedy film, very stiff upper lip, right? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think it's quite sexy and... Um, oh, bubbling under the surface, though. It's not as amped up as the trailer would suggest. No, the trailer suggests action thriller. <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> yeah. Drums, Maybe a chase scene or two. We do have a listener comment from The Futurist here who calls it a brilliant jewel of art comedy with Alec Guinness's eight sparkling facets of this movie gem. So let's start with Alec Guinness then. I guess most people know him from Tinker Tailor Soldier's Pie, Star Wars, maybe a few David Lean movies. But I think this is maybe the best he's been. Would you agree? I don't know. He's very funny in this film. Mm-hmm. I really like it. I think it's just very witty and smart and flirty and fun. I really enjoyed it. Although, not to derail the conversation away from Alec Guinness, but I did want to say that because this is a, a restoration, mm-hmm. um, Studio Canal putting it out, there's a disclaimer at the beginning of the film. Ah. Um, I don't know if you guys saw this, If you maybe mm-hmm. if you were watching it on a screen and mm-hmm. you didn't, I went to a screening of it. And in the disclaimer, it sort of says... 
there are some things in this film that modern audiences might find <laughs> offensive, but we've decided to preserve the film in its original context, which I think is generally, you know, the right thing to do. But the whole movie, I was like, When's it going to come out? When's it going to be racist? When's it going to be racist? When's it going to be racist? <laughs> and we get through like the whole movie, and I was like, oh, I can't figure out like what this disclaimer was for. And then they say the N word about mm. five times, yeah. quite unnecessarily. And I was like, oh, there it is. Yeah, I think uh, that was even controversial at the time. I didn't have the warning. I watched an old DVD copy of it, and I was just like, I mean, this is very like kind of modern. I really like this kind of dark humor it's got going on, and then it just hap- that happens. Like it's like the penultimate scene of the film. Yeah, it's done so well. <laughs> it just really they really just, just sprinkled it in there at the end. Obviously, with kind of old movies like this, it's it comes with the territory, but it's still you know not entirely pleasant to hear. Um, so you're pro disclaimer. I'm pro- I, I suppose I'm pro disclaimer, mm, but um, it's not like I uh, fainted. Or anything. It's no, just... I I didn't faint either. Yeah. <laughs> but I had had the disclaimer. So yeah, so you were prepared. I, suppose, you suppose, I guess you suppose you'd be prepared for worse. I'm not really sure what the best way to handle that sort of thing I'd, is. I'd, but... I'd characterise it almost personally as like the older white relative who you know you, you go and see for Christmas or Easter or something. You're like, oh, we're getting on. This is really great. Why not see them more often? And then and you're like, oh, as you're leaving. <laughs> They may say something that makes you remember. This is from 1949. This film. Yes. But I suppose it's a very small part of the film no it's, it's tiny I just thought it was anecdotally amusing <laughs> that is that is funny I didn't know about the warning actually outside of that though, I think there's some pretty dark jokes in there that I didn't expect <laughs> yeah a, a sort of dry cool detached sense of humour yeah. so should we discuss the plot a little bit more so people have a bit more context yes. the film is essentially about a duke who is being uh, executed the next morning he's receiving capital punishment for crimes that we're not entirely sure of and He's in his cell the night before writing his memoir and we flash back and find out how he ended up there. And uh, he is supposed to be a duke by birthright, but there are many people in the way. Mm -hmm. And so he decides as revenge for his mother dying and her not being able to be buried in her proper family grave that he will take matters into his own hands and off all of the people who are in line for the dukedom before himself there's also a love triangle between the girl that he grew up with who's sort of more kind of generally middle class and she is amazing uh, this this, um, character called Sibylla who is played by Joan Greenwood She's so sort of snooty and posh, and she's got this great, like, dirty laugh. She's amazing. Her voice is fantastic as well. It's so posh and plummy. Mm. Then there's the wife of, I think it's like a cousin or something, Mm. uh, who he takes a shine to, and she's much more refined, and he keeps ping-ponging between these women and sort of trying to play them off against each other, which is quite amusing. He's quite a sort of... I don't even know what the, the word is. Maybe a player. Mm-hmm. Byronic, Bachelor. I think, could be a, a word for it. But then Dennis Price has such a... There are so many aspects behind this film that are almost like queer, the, the, the narrative. Robert Hammer, the director and co-writer of the film, co-adapter of the film anyway, closeted gay man. Uh, Dennis Price as well. There's so much there bubbling under the surface. So even though it is quite a sexually charged film, that it's also quite uncommon and distinctive in those relationships. And the way that he is simultaneously taking down the hierarchy of of the landed gentry, but then also trying to wheedle his way in seems very contemporary as well. Definitely. And um, I don't know about you guys, but Dennis Price really reminded me of Richard E. Grant. 
Oh. That was the vibe that I was getting from him. No, you were both making faces at me like... No, 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 that's like something I didn't thought of but entirely agree with. I went on a more superficial level and I was like, this guy kind of looks like Peter Serafinowicz. Interesting. Uh, I think he's so fantastic. I love his just kind of... uh, He just kind of has this kind of very poisonous air to him, but it's very refined. He delivers just these, these very funny put-downs in the exact same cadence that he'll make a really grim joke mm-hmm. about someone dying in childbirth, Gosh. which is just like probably the maybe the most tasteful way I've seen a horrible <laughs> joke delivered. Mm-hmm. But he's just got this delivery that it just... I'm at a loss for words right now. Sorry. And so, same with his narration all the way through as he's describing him, him working his way through the family. And Yeah, it yeah would... it's very funny. I mean, he's obviously having an affair with uh, these two women and uh, he flashes back to his school days and he's like, oh, I never had a problem with the Sixth Commandment in those days. <laughs> yes, I love that line so much. It's and so well written. There was another bit which I really loved when he's talking to Sibylla about her uh, fiancé, Lionel, and she's complaining about how he's kind of just always interested in something else and she's just like, he claims he wants to improve his mind and he goes well there's plenty of room just like within like a second it's wonderful she also uh, she also says I wrote it down because it made me laugh she said it's awful to dance with uh, with dull men and have to laugh at their jokes while they tread on your feet and I was like yeah it is Mm -hmm. extremely Um, true so particular scene uh, uh, line dialogue aside would we recommend this film um, yeah for sure it's it's very funny Mm -hmm. Um, and I would say it's generally a sort of family friendly film yeah. you know you could you could get away with watching it with people of different generations uh-huh. um but also the humor is is weirdly adult i don't know what the rating of this film is like it's like a pg or something it must be a pg but it's it's witty it's it's more the humor is more dark than you would expect or than i expected yeah i think i think it would be fairly palatable for a family audience because like a lot of the darkest elements of the humor are just kind of like they're kind of draped in innuendo like it's very strong implications about things like i was saying with like a partic- that particularly dark joke it would just be him like kind of just crossing off names mm. on a family tree rather than saying like oh i'm glad this happened yeah. um so racial epithets aside, I think, yeah, it's a very kind of palatable film despite its darkness. I don't really know that much about the Ealing comedies. I, I feel I haven't really seen very many. I don't have a good context mm. for like where this fits in within any of that. But um, I was reading through the, the notes about the film and apparently uh, Michael Balkan, who was the head of Ealing, was wary of this particular film's darkness and mm-hmm. sensuality. So uh, perhaps it's one of the edgier ones. In, in Certainly edgy. And the director didn't really make many films after this at, at Ealing. He had struggled, actually, and had quite a tragic end not long, you know, maybe a decade or two after. But this is certainly more kind of savage and poisonous and satirical than Ealing Connery's usually are. They're quite frothy, but then usually the status quo will right itself in the end, whereas this is something a bit... And also the sexual content as well. Sexual suggestion is different. But yeah. let's wind back to Alec Guinness. Yes. So I, I oh, love the yes. story that he received the script and they said, would you like to play four roles? And he responded with, how about eight? He actually ends up playing nine because he also plays a character in Flashback that we always forget about. Who is your favourite uh, of his many characters? I really liked the priest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just this kind of shambling old man who you kind after a while, he really just fully embodies it. And after a while, you kind of were just... I felt kind of bad about some of the murders in the film because a lot of the characters Guinness plays are quite relatable mm-hmm. and kind. And then there's this, even though this one was not all that different, I was just like, just please off him already because he just <laughs> wouldn't stop talking. But the way he just kind of very patiently like draws out all of his lines, I just thought He's was really so wonderful. so funny. He's, He's really bumbling and he walks really slowly and drags <laughs> his feet and he takes about 15 minutes to say anything. I found myself 
frustrated that I was laughing at the portrayal of Lady Agatha with uh, <laughs> oh, with great. Alec Guinness in drag as a suffragette. Despite myself, I did think that was quite funny, especially when she gets sent up in a hot air balloon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Um, I don't know that the drag element was so much played for a joke as it was the moment where you see Alec Guinness's character, Lady Agatha. Yeah. yeah. Lady Agatha was like a prominent activist for the suffragette movement, and then it just instantly cuts to Lady Agatha just smashing windows with a bat. <laughs> <And> just, <laughs> I, just, I love that. I just love that. And she has a magnificent hat, doesn't she, Lady Agatha? There are a lot of magnificent hats in this movie. I was losing my mind over a lot of the costumes in this. I watched this one with my house, and we were all just kind of just, more or less just exclaiming with joy whenever a new costume would appear, especially with Edith and Savella. Like, mm-hmm. They'd be just like in a courtroom, and it's like the just the decadence of their costume would just like escalate with every scene they're in. Just these magnificent hats and just like really detailed, like kind of lace front dresses and all of this stuff. It was just so lavish and lovely. I think I that's really the that's the suggestion for the kind hearts and coronets drinking game. Take a drink every time there's a good hat. I don't know. Maybe. I, I I must shout out the admiral who's probably in this for the shortest amount of time, but he has a fantastic sight gag of him bloody-mindedly saying you have to turn starboard and the ship collides with another ship and then because he's the captain he has to go down oh, and he's just there saluting as the ship sinks, which, uh, you know, Alec Guinness showing dedication to the role, he was there, he was strapped to that ship as it sank and he said, it's okay, I do yoga, I can hold my breath for up to five minutes. So nice little... A uh, bit of Alec Guinness trivia there. He was, he he went there years before Tom Alec Cruise. Alec Guinness was doing yoga in the 1940s. Apparently. Well, I'm, the more you know. Truly a anyway. modern man. Yes. <laughs> anyway, Kern Hearts and Coronets, I think we have a resounding recommendation there. Next week... Uh, for Film Club, we have Men in Black from 1997, which is because the new releases next week include Men in Black International, Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson sort of rebooting, soft reboot of that franchise. Also new release next week is Diego Maradona, Asif Kapadia's documentary about the Argentinian football star. I'm not a football guy. Maybe I'll learn something from that. Uh, Simran, Campbellay, thank you so much for joining me today. If people wanted to read more of your work... Where should they go, Simran? Uh, you can find me on Twitter as at heavier underscore things, or you can read my work on the Guardian website. And we can read your fanfic of Eric and Charles. No, I was reading the fanfic. I wasn't <laughs> writing it. I'd like to clarify that. Thank you. Campbell Um You can find me on Twitter at Campbell A. Campbell. I guess you can find the spelling of my first name in the notes somewhere. Um, and my review of Dark Phoenix is up on the Little White Lives website. Fantastic. Listeners, you can let us know what you think of Men in Black or any of the films we talk about on this podcast at the usual channels at Truth and Movies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email or the comments section at lwlives.com slash podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. I'm Michael Leader. And as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.